Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Today is a very good day as Wendy and I are delighted to be joined by Lee McGuffey, Marketing and Digital Director at Virgin Red. Welcome, Lee. Hi, Tamara. Hi, Hi, Wendy, and thanks for having me on a very sunny but very cold day in Manchester. Hi, Lee. It's lovely to have you here. Now, Lee, everyone knows the Virgin brand, but for those that don't know, can you explain Virgin Red? Of course, I should be a dab hand at this now. So Virgin Red, in short, is effectively what we like to call the group uh, company-wide rewards club, for want of a better term. So we've been building it for the last couple of years. Uh, We started with the launch of what we call Virgin Points last year, which is our currency for the program. Uh, At the end of last year, we launched the Virgin Red app uh, into beta. And uh, and then the the actual um, timing of this was to perfection because we opened the doors properly to this on Monday this week. So this this podcast is very, very timely. That's probably why I look a little bit haggard as as, as we do. (laughs) Thankfully, nobody can see that. And then um, what we've done, we've invited in the first batch of people who are flying club members. uh, So anyone can join from today. Um, And a tiny bit of background on this. um, So the members uh, themselves can actually earn Virgin Points on everything from everyday spending with the likes of John Lewis to Octopus Energy. And of course, the big Virgin company stuff, such as Virgin Wines, Atlantic, Media. The thing that we're sort of trying to build through is that you can save these points up for incredible experiences, such as first-class travel with Virgin Atlantic, through to going to a gig at one of the Virgin Red private box we've got at Manchester AO Arena. But the thing is, it's just a start. So um, we're incredibly excited about what's in the pipeline for it. The type of partners we've got on board and as well as the evolution of the app and website is just the start. So it's our first venture into something we've been thinking about for many, many years now. So we're really excited. That is so fantastic. And congratulations on the launch as well. Thank you. Now, Wendy and I love to kind of get under the the, the skin of, of people and also find out about their journey. Now, I think it's fair to say you have not had the most traditional routes into marketing. <laughs> How did you get to where you are now? Could, could you tell us a bit about your journey? Yeah, I'm going to try to make it really short. I guess the best place to start would be school. So I, I think where I started at school, I was pretty average at school, if I'm honest with you. Not that I wasn't academic, I just wasn't that applied into what I was doing. So I had a, an interesting uh, sort of start where I, I left home just after I was 16, a big teenage rage and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I left in a, in a big blaze of glory and spent a number of sort of uh, the best part of a year sort of bumming around friends' houses and, and parents putting me up and helping me get on and and I was doing things like shelf stacking in a, in a local market. I was selling video games, secondhand video games. I was purchasing secondhand electricals from a, a secondhand store, selling at a, a, a college to scrape money together. And I got myself a little bed set. There is a point to all this. It will, it will help sort of build up the picture. And what I managed to do is I managed to get myself through college. Uh, so I managed to scrape myself through college. And uh, whilst I was at college, I bought a pair of turntables. So this was this is in really early 90s. Bought a couple of turntables and started collecting vinyl. I really wanted to go to uni. So I managed to push myself through college, um, but I just didn't have the money to get there. So what I did was I took what I thought was going to be a year off to try and save some cash. It turned out to be two years because I needed two years to save the cash. And I ended up working in all sorts of places. The, the most 
famous one that I talked about my friends is this horrible chicken factory I worked at, which sounds as bad as it, as it, as it it says. And I just spent basically two years doing shift work. So six in the morning till two in the afternoon, two in the afternoon till 10 at night, doing all night shift work and just trying to get all the money together. I was working in a pub in the evening. So it's barely any time other than just trying to save cash. So it took me two years, finally managed to get there and I got myself to Nottingham uni, did two years there. And then I shot off to Borough, Middlesbrough Uni to turn it into an honours degree. Now, what I was studying was business admin. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew I needed to do something which was going to give me a bit of a foothold. So mm-hmm. it was business administration. I wasn't particularly interested in law or anything sort of, you know, very focused. It was just business admin. Um, so I, I, I studied that and then I managed to get myself through university, plugging away at the music at the same time. So that's at a point with the turntables doing little gigs and getting sort of bigger and bigger with that and getting more adventurous and everything else. And then uh, my first job out of university was as a research analyst. It was as bad as it sounds, a research analyst in Hull. Now, I've got nothing against Hull, <laughs> but it wasn't where I imagined myself uh, after university. So I was writing white papers for like Oracle and Microsoft. And I was sat behind a desk, no human contact, essentially, sat behind a desk uh, thinking, what am I doing? What What's going on here? And I was quite technical, but I just couldn't, I, it just wasn't enjoying it for me. So I looked around and I thought, I need to do something with lots of people. Really excited about doing lots of people. So I saw a job in Leeds, which was an account executive uh, over an agency called Polter Partners. So this was 2001 year before the, uh, before the dot-com bubble burst. So I landed this amazing job at Polter Partners where nobody was over the age of 25. <laughs> it was the early days of the dot-com bubble where there was dining tables that cost £150,000 and all this crazy stuff. You know, it was really, really crazy. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, and then the bubble burst. Uh, and it was just this incredibly bonkers experience where the table was then getting pulled out of the building in front of us and all this kind of stuff. And I was exposed to clients like Morrison's and MTV. And, and it was just, it was brilliant. So at this point, uh, my DJ had taken off, which is where it starts to get a little bit interesting. The DJ started to take off. I started playing in clubs around the UK, uh, nothing big. And I started a website called fourclubbers.net, which was, bear in mind, this is in the 90s. Uh, and it was had a big bulletin boards, message boards. There was no social media back then or <laughs> messaging. it was bulletin boards. We amassed thousands and thousands of followers on this message board just purely by accident. And the aim of the website was really to get into clubs for free. I'll be honest with you. That's, that's what we built <laughs> to try and get into clubs for free. And it went really, really well. Um, it was really, really good. And as a byproduct of that, I started getting asked by the big clubs if we'd host a second room in these clubs and say, bring all your followers on the website into our club and you'll get to DJ as well. So then that started to take off and uh, we started to notice that we were getting bigger and bigger clubs. Uh, and the agency job took a second place to the DJ. So I was sort of doing that at, at the side. And then I got a residency in a big club in London. Then I found myself going backwards and forwards to London, spending more time in London than I was in Leeds. So queue a crazy couple of years where I moved to London. I got signed by a record label, <laughs> as weird as they sound. Wow. <laughs> I got signed by a record label. And then I found myself on the front cover of magazines like Mix Mag, all these kind of really bizarre things. And I got I was really lucky. I got to play music all over the world uh, in clubs like Cream and Gatecrasher. For people who are old enough, they'll remember these names. <laughs> the Ministry of Sound. I was in Ibiza all, all summer. And I was playing at festivals like Glastonbury and Creamfields. Wow. And, and another thing that happened, I also became a music editor at Mixmag during this period as well because of knowledge of music. So it was just, it was this kind of really bizarre period where everything, I was just getting into everything. Where there's a, a junction on this, I then started to think to myself, this is not a sustainable career. You know, it, this is not something that, unless I become Pete Tong, which was, <laughs> I had no chance of doing, this is not going to be a sustainable career. So I decided I wanted to quit by I was 30. 
So I made a pact. I'll quit by 30 and I'll focus uh, back on the advertising career. So um, so what I needed to do was um, six weeks before I was 30, I quit all of my gigs, quit everything, sold all of my records, sold everything I could and just said, I'm going to focus on advertising. So I did this and I took a job at uh, DDB uh, where I was an account director uh, and uh, working on Volkswagen. So just, again, just the interaction with individuals and people and everything else, it got really exciting. And then I took a job at AKQA working on the Xbox account. So I started to, I was really lucky. I landed a lot of amazing roles. And then this agency called Dare came up. Uh, this is around 2005. They just won Vodafone and they needed an AD. So I met with these amazing folks called Mark Collier and John Owen, amazing individuals who just started the agency. And I had a f- an amazing five years at Dare. Um, they really looked after me. Uh, at the end of the five years, they needed somebody to move to New York to help them to um, to open an agency in New York. So I jumped at the chance to move to New York in 2009, lived in Manhattan, had this apartment on 51st and 7, all that kind of stuff. Oh, living the dream. I was really lonely. I was really, really lonely. My friends had sort of, you know, no, my friends went over there. They'd started families and everything else. So I found myself sort of thinking, oh, maybe I should have done this a lot earlier. So I got a call from some friends in London who were starting a little ad agency, a little production agency. And they needed somebody who had some business now. And apparently they thought that was me. So they asked me to come back from, from New York. I jumped at the chance. I, I came across, we started this thing called Parata and we built a little business up to 30 people. And then we sold it into Work Club, uh, an agency called Work Club around 2013. We then subsequently sold it into Havas. And uh, I didn't stay for the, for any of that, but I just thought I'll take some time out. It was a brilliant experience. It wasn't all plain sailing. We made lots of mistakes with that little agency, but it, it, it turned out okay. So I took some time off. My now wife, Sarah, we went, um, we, we sort of had a little bit of work, what's next? And then MNC Saatchi came calling and I thought, am I going to go to a big network agency? This is going to be very weird. But I did. Uh, it was an incredible individual called Lisa Thomas, who was the CEO of MNC Saatchi. said, we're looking to start a production unit at MNC Saatchi. So we started that, built it to 70 people, uh, really successful. And then I went to Japan with my wife for a three week holiday and we're in Japan and, um, I said to Sarah, you know, what, what, what should we do? You know, what's the plan? And Sarah said, let's take a bit of a break. So anyway, by the end of the break, uh, the three-week break, we decided we were going to quit work, both of us. So we got back on Saturday uh, to London, handed my notice on a Monday uh, to an amazed Lisa Thomas and, and Christian Person, my boss. I said, I'm, I'm going to take a year off. I'm having a midlife crisis. <laughs> so we took a year off and we traveled the world. So we, we quit in September and by Christmas Day, on in December, we were at base camp at Everest in Nepal. So, you know, we just, we decided to take a break, really sort of get some distance between everything. We just spent a year traveling around the world. I had an amazing year, chased the sun for a year. Uh, and I came back to MNC Saatchi, they asked me to come back. So it's near the end of the story. And, um, and when I came back to MNC Saatchi, about four or five months later, Lisa Thomas said to me, Lee, I know I asked you to come back, but um, I'm off, I'm going to Virgin. I've got an incredible job at Virgin. So I was like, all oh, right, what am I gonna do? So long story short, I then found myself at Virgin. <laughs> Lisa asked me would I come in and join as the, the content and strategy director at, uh, at the family office uh, for Virgin, where I spent uh, two and a half years, an iconic brand that I grew up with. Uh, so I jumped at the chance to work to, to, to work and help uh, get under the skin of, of Virgin. It was a real big jump to go client side, but it was an incredible experience. And then Virgin Red, which is the business we, we I referenced at the top of this uh, at the podcast, they were building this business out and, and they said, would you like to get involved and, and interested with that? So kind of here we are 20 years later working on a loyalty program when I started out as a research analyst in Hull and all the sort of facets of the journey in between. It's kind of really 
really odd journey. And I didn't really plan to get to this point, but I, I think I just took the opportunities that came up and, and, and really just didn't try not to think too much about them. That was a long-winded way of saying this I, is how I got here. I love it. I think it was fair to say that it definitely wasn't a traditional approach. And I think what really strikes me about your story is that sense of adventure all the way through that um, that you have been kind of driven by other people sort of wanting you to join in uh, their agencies and everything. And, and it's definitely not traditional. I absolutely love your story. It's um, it's a funny one. I, I try to look back on it and it's only when, it's very rare only when somebody asks me to talk about it that I think, yeah, it is, it is slightly odd. But I think it's um, it's just driven from passion and really not wanting to settle for what's in front of you. And then just really just taking the chances as they come. You know, you're, the themes are taking chances as they come, whether it's disappearing off around the world where we had a mortgage, we had a dog, we had it sold the car, you know, and then realizing that actually, you know, you can you can get all these things again, you can do all these things again, but you, you can't get the chance again. So yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, it's it's definitely wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I bet. So let's go back a little further and, and, and have a chat about what led up to all that. So we'll start with Lee the child, if that's okay. So what were you like when you were little? I was little, very little, that's for <laughs> sure. And, I, and I'm still little, but I, I grew up in Liverpool, uh, a, a really sort of typical working class background in Liverpool. You know, I was a happy kid. Early upbringing was fun. We had a full house when I was really young. You know, the neighbours were always round. And I don't know why, but we had a Wurlitzer in the house. We weren't rich, you know, we weren't, we were a typical working class, but for some reason we had an old Wurlitzer in the house. And I think this is where the music thing stemmed from. Yeah. And I remember telling my, my dad used to um, fill these, this Wurlitzer up with old 45s uh, that he used to get from the pub around the corner. So when the pub would change their 45s, he'd get the batch from the landlord. They'd put the new records onto the Wurlitzer and then all the old Wurlitzer bits of vinyl I'd take up to my room. And I think that's where all the music stuff stemmed from. So it was a fun house. It was a loud house. I was always in the pub with my dad, you know, and everything, we're listening to everything from Motown to Prince to early electronic, like craft work, you know, and I was, I was 10 years old, 11 years Fantastic. old, so I had no idea. So, so that's where it all sort of stemmed from, I think. And when you were growing up, what did you want to be at that stage? Did you already want to be a DJ, for example? No, absolutely not. I'd, I, if I'm honest with you, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, and you know where that stemmed from was watching too much Top Gun uh, when I wouldn't shouldn't have been watching it at the age of eleven, nineteen eighty six. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and that's all I wanted to do. I'd, I'd watched it loads. I was the, always the smallest kid in school, so I had no chance of being a pilot. No chance. But Tom Cruise, you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's where my inspiration was. The, yeah. I had some other things which I really want. I wanted to live in a pub. I don't think that was what I wanted to be, but I wanted to live in a pub. I don't know why. My dad used to take me. Uh, round to the pub with them when we were younger. It was a different world in the 80s, you know. He used to put me on the bar and sit me in the bar at the age of seven and eight while he was having a drink with all his fans. So I just knew that I didn't want to get stuck doing something I didn't like. And that was kind of my principle, really. I never did get to be a fighter pilot, but hey-ho. There's still time. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like you've worked with some um, pretty incredible people over the years. Is there anyone in particular who's influenced you in your career? It's a really good question. I was looking when we were talking about the sort of things for this session, I was really thinking back on those individuals that have helped steer me or, or influenced. And I think when I was really on early on in my career, I think it was a case of less individuals and more everything that was going on around me. People doing stuff that they really didn't like doing was a big motivation for me. I thought, I, I don't really want to do that. You know, there has to be more to it. And then as I got into my ad career, there were some really key people. One I've referenced earlier was a, a guy called Mark Collier, who was the original founder of, um, of Dare, and a lady called Claire Hines, who was my boss. She is now the co-founder of Mr. President in London. Uh, and a, another lady called Nadia Powell, 
they were all sort of key influences on me when I was at Dare. And then I guess more recently, it was a guy called Christian Purser. He's, he's, he's a CEO in London at an ad agency now and, and somebody called Lisa Thomas, who again, I've referenced in this call, mm-hmm. the founder of Leader, you know, a, a CEO uh, of MT Sarchi Group. I've just been really blessed. They've all been willing to uh, be there for me personally and professionally. And as a tiny, tiny side story to just, you know, talking about genuine humans uh, and, and the subject of this podcast is, is a story that I never really tell, but it was 2007. And this is a really personal story. In 2007, I got really sick and um, I, I was at a barbecue, ironically, at Nadia Powell's house in Forest Hill. And it was, I think it was a Saturday. And um, I thought to myself, I don't feel too good. It was in the back garden. Next thing you know, I woke up uh, three days later in hospital and I'd had a hemorrhage. It was really crazy. This really incredible moment in time and um, just a pure random uh, thing. I'd had a hemorrhage and the subsequent six months were me being in hospital, uh, recovering from this this hemorrhage. I lost my eyesight. I couldn't see. I, I And I, was, uh, I wasn't with my wife then. We were, we, this is before I met my wife. So I was in a, in a flat in Camberwell. The reason I'm telling this story is that Mark Collier and the agency Dare said, it doesn't matter what he, Lee needs, we will sort it out and we will help him. And we will get him better and we'll see him through it and his job will be here when he gets back. Wow. So in the subject of genuine humans, that was an incredible period, incredible year in 2007 where uh, he came to the hospital, Mark Collier, a few people came, everybody rallied around in the agency. All of them washed my pants at some point because I couldn't wow. say, so they all came around my flat and washed my pants. And, and it's a funny story now, but it was incredibly, incredibly odd year. And um, and those are the people, that Mark Collier's, the Claire Hines, and Ajapaz, who all helped uh, me get back on my feet, where you you, see, you realize that, you know, you meet these people and um, and some some people are just, you know, they make a massive impact and they make a massive difference in your life. So although it's a slightly odd story, there's a happy ending. You know, there's definitely mm-hmm. happy because here I am, you know, it's, it, it's all good, but very, very strange here. And and when you talk about genuine humans there's that I've met, I've been very, very blessed to meet quite a few of them in my time who've, who've helped along the way. So, yeah, an odd story. I never planned to tell that story, but mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> well, it's an incredible story. Yeah, I mean, and no wonder that they're coming out as those really influential people. Mm. Are you okay now? Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, I, I had to wear some really odd glasses for a year, which looked like milk bottles on the end while I was correcting my sight and stuff like that. But 100%, you'd never know. You know, you'd never know. It was just, yeah, a very, very strange year, but also was the catalyst for me moving to New York. It was one of those things where you're sort of sat thinking, oh God, you know, I need to do these things that I said I was going to do. I need to move to New York. So Dare helped me get to New York, uh, you know, a year and a half later to fulfill that ambition and everything else. So yeah, you know, you're just out of adversity and out of strange times come opportunities and, you know, and, and all those kind of things. And the sign of great culture within that agency as well, that, that you know, it's something that I like to think that, that, we do as well at the agency but it's putting people first is so important honestly i i always reference that in in every team i i'm lucky enough to put together or any team i'm lucky enough to work in just think back of those things when you know when people need you most or 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 when times get tough how you respond and how you react and and i always use that that period in time as as a benchmark for for how how it could and should be done and what are you most proud of in your career uh, that's also a really good question. I think um, I think it's sticking to my principles, not giving up. Definitely are, are things I I talk about a lot. Um, I I have this phrase which it's a slightly profanity, but I it's it's really simple. It's just don't be a dick. And um, and you know I I, I stick with that. Invest in people. Uh, invest in relationships. 
you know, I'm, I'm proud of the, of the time at Dare because that was, you know, we got them to agency of the decade and I was part of that, the campaign agency of the decade sort of phase, growing our little agency, uh, you know, and, and managing to, to sell that and then uh, and launching Virgin Red most recently. I'm, I'm really, really proud of, of all of those, really. I'm, I'm lucky, you know, they've had so many incredible points in time. But I think, yeah, sticking to my principles, not giving up, I think are probably the key things. Brilliant. I'm going to bring us back more to the brands now as well, because uh, I think uh, everything that you've done will have had an, an influence on the brands as, as you've gone along. But thinking about any brand you've worked with, and, and obviously you've worked brand side and agency side, what's been the biggest transformation that you've seen? When, when I had that little agency called Parata with, with the three other guys, four other guys, we um we we were lucky enough to get a call, I think it was 2011, uh, from the British Olympic Association. This was pre twenty twelve Olympics, you know, and they'd had a, they'd been trying to build the brand up of, of Team GB and and everything else, and it wasn't a brand that was uh, well known Team GB at the time, and it wasn't you know in the conscience of the public. And we all remember fondly how amazing Team GB was, you know, post two thousand twelve. Uh, it became a beacon of hope and pride and excitement, and afterwards. Yeah. But we got a call, I think it was Christmas, just before Christmas two thousand eleven, saying uh, the agency that's going to build this global website for Team GB. Uh, it's not happening. You know, we need to get this thing out the door by April, you know, that this de- deadline's not moving. So I, I think the biggest transformation I've seen is how the British Olympic Association really assembled itself with Team GB to become a brand which not was on, not only a sports team, but it became this kind of pinup for pride and British hope mm-hmm. and, and, and everything else. And, you know, the, the rest is history in terms of what we did at Team GB. And how often you know it came up, but it was just it, the athletes did all the hard work. But building the brand from not really being known to being a household name and transforming itself into something that still you know eleven years uh, was it nine years on still stands uh, at the test of time and everything else. So it was a phenomenal brand building exercise and and something I I, I think was the British Olympic Association, the Association did an amazing job turning that around and making it what it was. So I think that's probably one of the most amazing ones I've seen that I've been part of. I love that. I, I also noticed that this must have been part of the brand building to, that you helped with as well, that there was a lot more linking between Team G, uh, GB and the business world as well. And and in fact, I remember, Wendy will remember this, we became quite obsessed about the cycling team, the, the women's cycling yep. team. Uh, in fact, the, just the GB cycling team generally, but their obsession with incremental changes and and how that would uh, we kind of talked a lot about how that impacts the business, even down to the level of whether they should uh, shave or not when yep. they're cycling because it, it kind of it had an impact on their cycling. And I just I was just obsessed. So yeah, thank you for the work you did on that. I oh, know you know we just played a small part in it, and I think the story around the one percent, you know, there's that kind of issue of just changing things. One percent has a profound force multiplier effect. So. No, I think, again, another incredible experience and, and something, you know, I, I look back on fondly. And I mentioned about you working brand side and agency side. I love asking this question, but what is the biggest difference that you've noticed? <laughs> I, I was really, I was really nervous when I moved over to, to brand side. I am um, having spent all those years in agencies, being exposed to different agencies and different clients. I think in my experience, there's probably three key things which are different. And I think number one is the pace. Number two is the detail. Uh, and number three is the ownership. And I think um, there are ob- the, the obvious things that most people um, who've moved from agencies over to brands will say is the pace. You know, things move slower. Um, they move slower on the brand side. 
and it takes a while to work out why that is. You know, the, you can have that immediate frustration of why is it taking so long? You know, in agencies, we just clip, 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 we get it, we get it done quickly. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing around detail is kind of C.1. You know, there's so much more of it when you're deep into the business and in the fabric of everything in the brand. So, uh, you know, that, that detail becomes the thing which makes the pace a bit slower. And then which leads to kind of point three, I guess, which is the ownership. So when you've got an account and you, you will both know this from, you know, owning your own agency, when, you, when you've got an account at an agency, it's all about the relationship with the client mm-hmm. that you build, you know, and if you get a really strong, trusting relationship with that client, you can do amazing things, but you never truly get close to the brand. In my view, you know, you're always, the, the, the client is always the, the, the sort of piece between uh, you getting really close to the brand. So you never really own it. Mm. But when you're client side, it's all in your hands, you know, and it's your investment and it takes on a totally different meaning. And that, that's that kind of, so pace, the detail and the ownership are the three things which are definitely different from a brand side uh, to agency side, for sure. Definitely. I, w- I would say that ask any agency owner and the biggest compliment they could be given by a brand is if the brand says that they feel like you're an extension of their team. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100%. Yeah, no, no, I talk about um, if you can, if you can, that agency just becomes part of that brand team or part of that product team, you know, you, you're onto a winner. And those ones you look back on fondly over your agency careers is where you genuinely, that became real. And, yeah. you know, you do your best work and, you know, everybody, uh, the businesses, both sides make, make the financials they need to prop it up and, and you get awards off the back of them. So now we've mentioned genuine humans and we're all about creating genuine human connections but how do you create connections between virgin and and your customers so virgin's been around for 50 years i think last last year was was our 50th year and it's a shame we never really made a little bit more of it you know but but obviously things changed this the climate changed and obviously this awful pandemic we're in changed things but we've been around for 50 years and and i think the reason how Virgin connects uh, with its customers. I think a lot of the values that Virgin has are relatable. So those values that the brand stands up for, that Richard Branson uh, started in, you know, in, in 1970, 71, you know, around it being simple and witty and and honest and surprisingly delightful and all those kind of things. And, you know, and being a transparent brand. So Richard, is, uh, Richard and the family have, have been really open about what the business stands for and, and what Holly stands for and Sam stands for um, and telling stories. They've always told stories behind the brand. Richard is one of the original architects of, of stories and, and opening up a brand to, to customers beyond the product. So, you know, he's done, he's for me, he, I grew up reading his books at university and everything else before the Musks and the Zuckerbergs and everything else. He was the original entrepreneur. So, um, you know, we're really lucky to have a, a founder like Richard who is active and, uh, it's deep into the business and, and, and everything else. But I think it's about just being honest, transparent, having values that people can relate to. Not always easy. You know, it's, it doesn't it's, it doesn't always work. But I think that's why Virgin has always had a, a place in a lot of people's hearts over the years and why people have naturally uh, have been, you know, attracted to the brand, whether it's shopping or just being immersed in it. Great answer. Thank you. What's your biggest priority for the year ahead? Number one, I guess, is to just get through it. <laughs> I think as of is it next week or the week after I've been working from home for a year. Yeah. And although I've worked from home on and off for a while, you know, having this consistently has, has been tough. So the biggest priority is to just have a successful year and get through it healthy and well. But most importantly, from a work perspective is to grow Virgin Red. It's very timely that we have this conversation. We took the beta shutters off this week and we've now got the general public coming into the app. So we want, I want to make it famous that we, myself and all the team want to make it famous. We're going to create another Virgin brand 
that people love and find useful in their everyday life, you know, and create that touch point for the brand. I want to have fun. I want to scale the ambition that we've got, uh, have the best rewards program in, in, in the world eventually. And then, you know, as I said, for just, I guess, for Sarah and I, my wife, to stay physically and mentally, mentally held, to stay motivated, mm-hmm. to try and come out the other side of this with a real appreciation of how lucky we are really and, and you know, and how fortunate we are and, and to just not, not try to dwell on it, just learn from this year as well. It sounds very cliched, I know, but it's an opportunity to really just reassess everything mm-hmm. when we come out the other side of this, you know, how will the public react? Will they... Will they go crazy like the Roaring Twenties, you know, and we're off the back of the Spanish flu pandemic where everybody went crazy and we had the Roaring Twenties? Or will we take a totally different look on on, on the world? And and I, it's going to be interesting to see. But no, I'm, I'm really excited about Virgin Red growing it, scaling it and staying healthy, I think. Yeah, that balance is absolutely key. And not easy. No. <laughs> now, how would you define your leadership style? Yeah, I, I think this stays the same each time I answer it. But I, it, so... I would say it's one of being open. I definitely want to be open with my team, let them know what we're doing, over communicating, talking to the team, being inclusive, bringing everybody on the journey with with me, caring. I would say it's caring. You know, I I like to put an arm around the team and make sure they're okay. I'm definitely not one of those people who stands on the soapbox and dictates what needs to happen. And I take really, I take loads of pride in building a team that is having fun and succeeds. I've always said when you build a team, I love to put people who are around me who are better than smarter than me. And I, I don't think that's something you should uh, be scared of saying. I think that's the whole point of a good leader. You 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 get people who are doing the right thing in the right place and making a career for them. So I'd, I'd say it's one of openness and uh, and just involving people. Have you found that you've been influenced by other leaders or or do you have like a, a kind of a, a go-to business book or something? It's just a few, you know, I've... I've I'm, there's one that I, I I keep going back to, which is uh, a book by a, a chap called Cal Newport. Um, it's called Deep Thinking. And um, I've spent sort of 20 years racing at the speed of light on, on stuff. And this book uh, has given me a new th- sort of thought on his principle of, of you have to, to get to do good work. It takes time, um, you know, and you have to your best, your deep thinking produces the best results. So trying to find moments where you box off time to do the really heavy strategic stuff. You're, if you snatch at it, the output will be the same. So in terms of books, you know, that is a book I always go back to. Um, there's another book called um, The Culture Code uh, by Dan Coyle, mm-hmm. which is which is a brilliant book, which is about sort of understanding how that all fits together. Uh, and then in terms of leaders, I, I, I don't know, I think I've been lucky enough to sponge the way people do it. Mark Collier, probably, I keep going back to him, but you know, I, I think he, he made a massive impression on me in sort of 2006, 2007. And the way he built that agency, grew it to an incredibly massive agency. It had huge clients and he never became somebody that wasn't approachable or people didn't want to work for. And I don't think that's easy. You know, there's it's, it's not an easy thing to do when you've got to make tough decisions as a, as a business owner. And you, you'll know this only too well running your agency. So, um, so no, I, I think I've, I've sponged a little bit off everything. But yeah, the Cal Newport book, Deep Thinking and and The Culture Code by Dan Coyle too, I definitely go back to when I need a bit of help. Brilliant. And we talked about the pandemic um, and working from home. It's not easy. How have you been focusing on, on culture and team collaboration? Well, it started off probably the same as you you guys, which is we did Zooms every week and we had yeah. drinks on a Friday and we did quizzes and, you know, fatigue set in and and you know it's very difficult when you can't have that conversation in the corridor and just check in on everything so for me uh, you know I'm over communicating I'm telling teams more 
then they might need to know. Um, and sometimes you don't get that response back because it's very difficult through the screen, but just keep keep over communicating, keep telling telling the team what's going on. Regular check-ins, you know, even if it's two minutes, it doesn't have to be a video call. It could just be a phone call. Just check in, make sure they're all right. Encourage people to stick their arm up, stick their hand up if they need some support. Still trying to do coffee mornings. So a couple of my team, we do coffee mornings where uh, 8.45, uh, I've, my, my assistant, Jilly, yeah, it's incredible, you know, and everybody's situation is different, but we have a, we have an 8.45 coffee check-in where she updates me on the best box sets that she's watched this week. And I scrib- <laughs> scribble them down and stuff. It's just those those moments, you know, where you're maybe not talking about work. You may be just having a, a, a chat. It's hard. It's really, really hard. You've got to, as a, as a leader or somebody who's running a team, you've just got to keep, keep and keep communicating, keep checking in, keep seeing everyone's all right. Look for the signs, you know, of people. And just and, and and try to be positive. You know, we have to be positive, but also acknowledge when it's when it's not when it's not easy. Lean into it, acknowledge it, um, and just see how you can help. It's 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 difficult, isn't it? And I'm sure you're both, you know, experiencing it as well. I think the key there is mixing it up a bit. Totally agree with that. You know that what ha- what people were finding useful six months ago, they may not be finding useful now. And and so yeah, you just have to keep listening to what people are saying and and get their feedback of what they need and everyone needs different things you've got people trying to balance uh children at home and and homeschooling um and you've got people who are living by themselves and and just you know really feeling quite a bit lonely so there are so many needs there are and you know i've got i've got parents in my team i've got individuals who are house sharing i've got individuals who are on their own and you know not one size doesn't fit all so so it's just trying to understand that you know work is work and a family and everything else is at home and the challenges with the children are real you know and, and when we got the call a couple of a few weeks ago saying that you know the schools are closing i could see you know individuals on my team thinking i don't know how we're going to get through this bit this is going to be really really tough but we, we we're getting we're getting through it you know we're trying to do what we can saying to the some of the the team of who are parents nine till eleven you don't work, you know, you focus on, on the kids, uh, and, and you get them set up and you will pick up when we need to pick up, but box those time off because it's really easy to, to miss those bits. But yeah, it's tough. It is tough, but we're getting through it. So we're going to move on to the final part of the podcast now. Um, and we're going to get a bit more personal. <laughs> so we'll start with what's your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasures. I, I've got, I guess I've got two. One of them is trainers. I'm obsessed with sneakers and trainers. So my wife will tell you, it's just, I've got a, I'm lucky enough to have a, a section in the room, which is just full of trainers. So I collect all sorts of trainers from blazers, Nike blazers to Air, uh, Jordan Air 6s. I'm, I'm just obsessed with trainers at the moment. And like any 40 something year old man, I'm still obsessed with video games. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, still obsessed with video games. It stems from my childhood. So what's what's your favorite game at the moment? So I've I've got a Nintendo Switch and I'm still playing Zelda Breath of the Wild and yeah I'm still playing The Witcher. You know I sound like a right nerd, but yeah I still <laughs> I, I find it as my solace. You know when you just need a respite and everything else, I pick up the Nintendo Switch and play it. My wife just goes, but you know what? Whatever keeps him happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's your idea of a perfect weekend? Perfect weekend. It would be a slow start. I think. If you ask me right now, it might be different from two years ago, but it's definitely a slow start on a Saturday. Maybe a coffee in bed if I'm, if I'm feeling that with my with Sarah and, and our pooch Norma uh, <laughs> with us. Maybe a nice walk in the afternoon because we're close to the Peak District where I live. So trying to get out in the peaks. If I could, I'd go to the cinema in the evening. I love movies. That's a, another sort of guilty pleasure. 
maybe Sunday morning, a bacon naan roll from Tashum, something like that would be ideal. Tinkering on the house because I'm obsessed with automation, smart home stuff, internet of things. So I'm always messing with that, much to Sarah's dismay. Uh, and there's always music on, always. Always got music on. The house has got Sonos all over the place, you know, again, drive my, drive my, my wife mad with the music on. So that would be a perfect weekend, I think. I think I'm struggling to get bit past the bit about your dog being called Norma. Yeah, it's um, it it always strikes a it strikes a chord, especially when you go. We've had this over the years when we're out in a park, and we're going through, and somebody sat on a bench. We had a couple of times. will say, you know, it'll be a lady. I'll say, um, on this occasion, oh, your dog's lovely. What's the dog's name? And I'll say it's Norma, and, and then they'll say, well, that's my name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what we don't want to tell them is the reason we we call her Norma is because she looks like a little old lady. So, um, so yeah, she's called Norma. <laughs> Let's carry on with the geeky stuff. What app couldn't you live without? So this is this is going to be pretty obvious. I couldn't live with the the Alexa app, and it's less about the voice control on it and more about the automation aspects mm-hmm. that Alexa does. So I used to be obsessed with an app called If This Then That, uh, which allows you to link apps together to create uh, services and automation. And I've switched everything to to Alexa. So I love it. It basically powers everything in the house from turning on the lights to turning on cameras to uh, turning the TV on through to entering a room with the temperature and all this kind of stuff. So um, I love it. I, I love the Alexa app for its automation. I know it's a bit nerdy. If you could have, no, nothing wrong with nerdy. I'm, I'm a fellow <laughs> nerd. Uh, if you could invent something, what would it be? This is totally ridiculous, but do you know what it'd be? It would be, and you you can see this, but people are listening can't. It would be a never-ending cup of tea <laughs> that stayed at the perfect temperature. I'm a northern lad, so you know the right color, the right Pantone color. If I can make invent a cup of tea, bottomless cup of tea that stayed the same temperature, heaven. I'd buy it. And if you had an extra hour each day, what do you think you'd do with it? I hope this doesn't sound corny. Do you know what? I'd spend it with Sarah. It sounds really, it sounds really corny, but she has been so patient with my randomness and um, my desire to tinker and chase interesting things that are happening. That I owe that hour, that spare hour that you're gifting me. Um, I'm going I owe it to Sarah to just, you know, laptop down, phone down, just hang out with Sarah. I think I know it's a bit cheesy, but that's definitely what I do. It's lovely. It's absolutely <laughs> lovely. And I wish I could gift you that hour for real. <laughs> Amazing if you could. And how do you think your friends would describe you? Lucky, I think. You know, and I, I have that um I have that conversation with quite a lot of people where the phrase isn't there, I think you have to learn to be lucky. I think my friends would say I'm lucky. I'd agree with them. You know, I've I've had a few close shaves and you know, I've I've had a few of those sliding doors moments where I've taken a decision and, and it's worked out. And there's been loads that haven't, just to be clear. There's been a lot that haven't as well. <laughs> They would say I'm probably caring, small. Everybody says I'm small. I'm, I've learned to deal with it. I'm small. And they would say late. It's a trait that I absolutely hate, but um have to admit I'm, I'm late. I tend to be late for things and it's my worst, worst trait. So they'd say, lucky, he's quite small. He's very caring and he's always bloody late. <laughs> um, would would they say you're an introvert or an extrovert? I would say extrovert, but not in a not in a loud way. Uh, not in somebody who you know stands on a chair and declares himself in the room, but I, I'm definitely an extrovert. I, I don't. I like to. I love meeting people. I love listening to stories. I love finding out about people. So if we go to a room or a party, or I enjoy introducing myself to people and saying hello and stuff like that. But so extrovert, but not in a definitely not in a shouty way. I hope. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I think we'd all we'd all probably a lot of us would say time travel. I would love to have time travel as a superpower to go 
and see some of those things in history, you know, those moments in history, not necessarily to change what I've done or to, to affect my outcome. Cause I don't think I'd ever change that, but just to see some of those amazing history time travel every day, it's probably stems from my love of back to the future and eighties movies, I think. With a bit of Doctor Who TARDIS thing going on in there, perhaps? That'd be amazing, yeah. yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. Sonic screwdriver to boot, that'd be incredible. <laughs> Lee, we're coming to the end, but is there anything that you wish that we had asked you, or do you want to end with any closing thoughts? I would just I, I'd just say, first things first, it's a, it's, it's a privilege to, to be asked to chat on a podcast like this, especially with it being called Genuine Humans. You know, you don't make it easy with that. When you said Genuine Humans, I was like, oh my goodness, how on earth? How on earth did they, why, why did they want to talk to me? Um, so no, it's a privilege to, 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 to talk on a podcast called Genuine Humans. My story is incredibly random. It has threads through it, which are other things to sort of, for people to, to hook onto. It's, I'm sure it's not unique, but it's definitely random. And for anybody starting out, my advice and my thoughts on this, given it's about Genuine Humans, is to play the long game. Invest in relationships. Don't take the quick option at someone else's expense. Um, I've seen it done and you can get places quicker but it doesn't play into the idea of playing the long game and and things. If you're in this industry, advertising or brand, people get to know each other and everything else. So play the long game. And if you're considered well into your career, like I am, I guess at my age, keep an eye out for genuine humans. And um, if you see, if you see them and you find them, add them to your team, add them to your business, add them to your friendship circle, if you're lucky and, and you know, and you will not regret it. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe, or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.